Progressive Rugby League. G'day, John O'Duncan. Can you smell it? That whiff, that scent of the new rugby league season. Of course you can't, we don't have the technology. Coverage of sport, including rugby league, has come a long way over the years. When we tune into an NRL or Super League game, we're ingesting a visual feast as dozens of high or standard resolution cameras transport scenes of sporting prowess through our ridiculously large television screens and directly into what I'm reliably informed are the corneas of our eyeballs. We're also hearing a lot more of what's going on in the middle than we ever have. Don't worry, I won't get too technical about the ear canal or external auditory metus, but we now know through modern auditory technology that, for example, referees shout a lot and players swear a lot. No surprises, but it's good to have it confirmed. But what about the senses our idiot box, great film and soundtrack incidentally, can't help us with? When we're watching our favourite players do their thing, we're seeing pretty close to what they're seeing. We're hearing pretty close to what they're hearing. But what are they smelling as they make their final preparations in the dressing room or wrestling for body position in the ruck or packing into a scrum? And what does it feel like to have the ball jolted out of your grasp by a rib rattler or to be knocked into wooziness by a shot that, let's be generous, may have bounced up off the ball? Well, I clearly can't answer these questions, but I sure as hell can ask them. And I intend to ask them to someone who, as a genuine engine room player, would have experienced all the feels rugby league can throw at a person, and presumably would have smelt it all too, through his stoic career at the Canberra Raiders. It is a great pleasure to welcome Raiders legend, social and community servant, former ACT Australian of the Year, all-round nice guy and sensory specialist, Alan Tung, to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Alan, hello. Hey, John. Hey, thanks for having me. I thought you might have been having a stab at me with my broken nose talking about all this smell. <laughs> no, thanks for having me on. So good to have you along. Thanks so much for taking the time. Alan, you've generously agreed to help we consumers of rugby league better understand the sensations rugby league players experience on game day, the stuff that we can't penetrate through a TV set. Perhaps we can start with the smells of rugby league, you know, the smells of rugby league. As someone who knows the rugby league playing experience better than most, but also as someone who now understands the rugby league TV viewing experience just like the rest of us, is there a certain smell or stench, if you will, that comes to mind when you think rugby league that perhaps the the TV viewer wouldn't consider when we're in the, the slouch couch position, is there a, a smell and or a scenario that comes to mind? Yeah, I think, you know, when I think about that question, uh, it takes me back to my childhood. You know, even in that dressing room smell, it's something that is almost ingrained in you from a, from a young kid, whether it is, you know, some of that deep heat, danker up, that, that smell, it's the tape, the strapping tape, the, the smell of that coming out of the box. Um, and, you know, the, the Gatorade that's going around and, and different things like that, it's got this own unique, yeah, it does, it's got this unique experience. The, the dressing room experience is, is something that, you know, very rarely, you know, other than that inner sanctum really get to experience. And mm. it certainly has got its own, it's almost got its own ecosystem. It's smell, it's uh, sensories that, that goes on and around it. So, yeah, to me, it's it's got that smell that sort of stimulates that excitement in you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 
if I can say it like that. Yeah, totally understand. Can you take us into a, a rugby league dressing room just before a big game? What is the overriding scent as the coach is giving his final words and, and the nerves are building at that point? What, what are you smelling? Yeah, you know, I had a mate ask me a similar question the other day when we were talking about, you know, just, you know, towards the back end of your career, does the whole hype of it, you know, does it sort of just dull off? Mm. And um, I said, you know what, it, it didn't for me. It mm. didn't for me. That game day experience, you know, when you drive in, you're driving into the stadium, you're parking, the fans are there, you're walking through, you're going down the tunnel into the dressing sheds, you know, you go out onto the field to get a bit of a look and a feel. If you're at an opposition's ground, you go out, you know, you touch the surface and mm. feel the dew, the different things. There's, it's, it's such a unique experience and the excitement, it never went away from my first game <laughs> to my final game. And it is something that it's hard to, to probably put into words in a roundabout way, mm. but it's it's almost like that, I suppose, that first day at your new work or the first day at, at school or mm. that experience where it's just there's excitement, there's nerves. You know that you've put in a heap of hard work to be able to get you to this opportunity. There's expectation that's on you. Mm-hmm. And there's also, you know, one of the things about rugby league is that you don't think about it too much because you're in the, I suppose, just in the battle of it or in the mindset of it. Mm. But, you know, there's a danger element to doing what we do. And that creates this whole excitement, tension, nerves, energy on its own. And so yeah. you've got all of that. And then, I tell you what, there's nothing better than running out, especially onto a Canberra stadium, but, you know, out for that first time when you're able to do that onto the field, the energy that that brings to you, I tell you what, that's something special. Yeah, it's interesting you you mentioned, you know, starting a new job. I know when I've started new jobs, one thing I've noticed in that first week or so, you you literally notice everything. Your senses are heightened and you take notice of every little comment the way everyone interacts with each other you really note that and when you've worked at a place for a while you totally take that for granted so that's really interesting that you you kind of feel that 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 never goes away as a first red rugby league player yeah and you know especially those last couple of minutes before the siren sort of or the two minute bell goes and you you're going out onto the field because you know there's often that a lot of talk with the coaches and players you know leading into just about going out to the warm-up you do your warm-up then everything sort of everybody comes back in and does their last little bit of preparation. Coach might say his final words, and then there's this little bit of time where it's just yourself, you know. And you, you've got this heightened experience, and you you're around and you're looking at what people are doing, and some are listening to music, some are you know in their in their quiet little time, mm. you know, just in their own little space. Others are trying to rev themselves up, and it's just it's a really unique experience, and you. You try and leave it that way. I know when I was captaining the side, it's it's that precious time where you don't want to you don't want to mess with the other players. This is their own little bit of space to get them right. You do what you need to do, and they need to do what they need to do before you go out into battle. All right, so we're in the dressing room. There's a bit of a, a nervous period, as you're mentioning here, and and just on the the stench and, and sensation side of things, it, what about a, a bit of nervous vomiting? I, I read. Alan Langer was a, a pre-game spewer. Was that a, a common stench before a big game? Did many players expel their nerves in, in that fashion? Well, it was for me because I was exactly like Alan Langer. I, I really? vomited before every game. Before, yeah, it was just something that, you know, I was somebody that never could really, like everybody 
you know, has their different preparation, mm. as we all know. But I was somebody that never could really, you know, stomach a huge amount of food, like during the day of the game. Like mm. have a good breakfast, I suppose, but lighter lunch, lighter afternoon tea sort of thing. But even if I did do all the right things, that was just that, that nerve before you went on and often would vomit before the game. You know, there was there was a couple of people that, you know, would often often do that. I wouldn't say the majority, mm. but I would say the waft of it, you know, would go right to the dressing sheds. <laughs> but, it, uh, you know, it certainly the noise was there. Um, you could hear people going and doing that. And it just, you know, it all creates this unbelievable atmosphere. Mm. It really does. You've got all these different things going on. You can hear the crowd outside. Yeah. You know, maybe you're the home team and you've heard the other team, the ground announcer, introducing them as they go on you can hear the footsteps as they walk past your dressing sheds mm, mm. before you're about to come out and you've got all these things going on you knock on the door and say it's time to go uh, it's like letting the ball out of a chute and you you'll get let out of your dressing room before you go out to the roar of the crowd it's something really crazy yeah well i mean what better way to bond than a, a bit of a, a group vomiting session now alan just <laughs> as a side note while we're in the dressing room of the coaches you played under, who gave the most stirring pre-game or even halftime speeches? Who gave you that feeling where the goosebumps rose and the hairs just went bolt upright? Look, I've, I've had them from all of my coaches. I really have. I've had moments where they've really they've gone off. They've absolutely <laughs> let loose on, on myself, on the team, on whatever it may be. And we've had some really you know deep moments there as well. I've had them in all, um, you know... Mal, Mal Meninga, my first mm. coach, you know, really close to the playing group and, you know, frustrated, passionate, you know, right throughout. You know, Matty Elliott was a really deep thinker and mm. the way that he spoke to the group and connected to was, you know, there were some really special moments there. Neil Henry, an old school coach, just told you how he saw it. Mm. I love that about him and, you know, it was, was really great. And Dave Ferner, who I was lucky to play alongside, super passionate about the Canberra Raiders, um, you know, wore his heart on his sleeve. Like, I get, I, yeah, there's moments from each of them that, um, you know, it, it means a lot to the players, but I tell you what, you know, it, it means as much, if not more, to the coaches, and they really, you know, put everything into it, and, you know, it comes out in the way that they speak to the group. Mm. Now, one more on the smells, if I could, Alan. We, we hit the field on a hot Sunday afternoon. We're 20 minutes in, and there's a knock-on. A winger has inexplicably fumbled a dummy half. The referee calls a scrum. Heavy breathing, heavy sweating, behemoths approach. You're right in amongst it. What's on the nose here? Yeah, I mean, I think for me there is a typical rugby league sweaty jersey smell. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that some people would be... Uh, you know, worse than others, but there is that. And I played a lot at uh, Dummy Half Hooker also at Lock, so my head was sort of in the middle of it all there. So, yeah, I think that there is this typical sort of rugby league smell that you do get from all of that. But, yeah, you, you're right. There is a, there is a uniqueness. I don't know how, how I would exactly describe it, I suppose, but I think, you know, I've got four children of my own and they're, they're pretty heavily into sport. They've got that typical sport yeah. smell. Bit of sweat, bit of uh, those pheromones that are about there. It's, it's all, it's all wrapped up in that. Yeah, those plastic jerseys when they get a bit of sweat on them. Yeah, I know the smell. Kind of like being ringside at the gym, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. you're right. All right, now 
that's a bit of fun on the smelly side of rugby league. Let's go to the sensation of touch and what it feels like to be a professional rugby league player. Alan, as one of the toughest pound-for-pound forwards in your generation, can you tell us what it feels like both when a hit goes well and when it goes badly on either side of the ball? And I want to ask you about concussion in a sec. So when I say when a hit goes badly, I mean in this instance, you know, the timing went wrong or the defender got the better of you. How does that feel? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing better. I mean, especially when... You know, they're tackling defensively, you know, when something goes right like that, you know, hours and hours are placed into, you know, all the technique work that you do. But, you know, for me, I needed to be a player that needed to generate power through almost accelerating into the tackle because Mm -hmm. I wasn't a big body. Those last three or four steps into contact were really, really important to me. And there can be things that can go wrong, you know, a little bit of footwork, you slip, you know, a little bit of timing off and things can go wrong. But when it does come right, there's this, it's almost like when you're going at 100 mile an hour and, you know, you hit somebody in the opposition, and when I say hit, it's a a defensive tackle, Mm. and you're going as fast as you can go, but it it feels sweet to your end, if Mm. you know what I mean. Like, it feels comfortable. It feels soothing almost to to you as as the person that's making the tackle, and hopefully it doesn't feel (laughs) soothing to the other person because you've hit them in the sweet spot and you've knocked them down or forced the ball free, whatever that may be. But there's actually a, um, you know, when it goes well, there's almost a, a, a soothing nature to you and it, and it actually gives you energy. It, it sort of, you can see players when they do put off a good shot and you can mm. see them, uh, that you almost stand up and you think, oh, they're a bit cocky and carrying on. But it actually, it, there's this, this energy and this feeling that it brings to you as well when it does come off. Mm. So that is one thing. And, you know, when it doesn't, you know, you feel it. You feel it in your joints. In you know, when something doesn't come off right, there, you know, when it hasn't, um, it jars your body. You know, it shouldn't. And because you've done it, you know, a thousand times over, you know what it should feel like. So when it doesn't come off, yeah, it, it certainly rattles you and puts you off. Well, that's fascinating insight. Thank you so much, Alan. Now, the the wrestle is a feature of modern rugby league. I guess it's always been a factor throughout the game's history, in one way or another, but. The contest of the wrestle in most play the balls is more a modern phenomenon. Was there a trend around the wrestle that you noticed as your playing career progressed? And and can you tell us what it feels like to be dominated in a wrestle, especially if there are some dark arts employed? Yeah, I mean, it really started to come in sort of through my era. And I think, you know, the Melbourne Storm in particular, I know we we can't blame everything on them, obviously, (laughs) but, uh, you know, they were so good at it. They Mm. were just just phenomenal at the way that they could control and slow the game down to their speed and so you know once that started to take off everybody jumped on board and, and followed suit so it certainly was something that you know probably in the first couple of years we you know we were doing more focusing on that contact and you know that initial contact that you do and then wrapping up the footy afterwards and you know we're still hitting and driving it wasn't this focus a bit more now of you know the initial contact but it's almost like a hit and hold mm. and then wait for somebody else to come in to play their part and then wait for somebody else to come in and then that's all buying valuable seconds in slowing the play the ball down so it certainly has changed that whole process there of the art of tackle and that first contact and your actual thought process behind you know the way that you need to tackle has, has really changed a lot in the game so 
you know, it is something that as a, as a club we, you know, focus so heavily on. Like, I mean, at the start, we didn't dedicate whole sessions just to wrestling. You know, mm. you're out there tackling, but you're, you're in game scenarios, throwing the footy around and, you know, playing as much as you could, whereas, you know, there was whole hour, hour and a half sessions just dedicated on just wrestling. And mm. so it became much bigger at the back end. But, you know, there's, there's some people that it's hard to... Explain, but uh, I think some of your your listeners would definitely understand that some of the wrestling is not. There's so much technique in it, as you know, and there's mm. there's some players that could have been. You know, when you looked at them in the gym, say there were some guys that could bench press 150 kilos, and there were some guys that could only bench press 100. The 150 kilo bench press player didn't mean he was the strongest wrestler right. and you often see that that um you know some players they just had this knack or they had you know really great core strength or hip strength and mm. they were able to you know to use that there was guys that you know they couldn't they couldn't lift anything in the gym but they'd wrestle you like a ragdoll they'd throw you right. around like you were a feather just amazing and so you'd have that in some of your playing groups and i'll tell you it's with some of the guys it's it's frightening like yeah. they grab you and they put you in positions especially me being a smaller guy like i tell you you were just at the end of the day they could do with whatever they wanted to do with you. Yeah. And interesting talking about how, you know, the approach to the wrestle developed during your playing career. You were talking before about how much pleasure you got out of a good hit where you, you sort of sped up those last few steps and just really accelerated into the collision. And, and if you got the timing right, it felt so good. Did that affect the enjoyment of the game for you? You know, this this new technique of eventually became sort of a bit more hit and hold. Did, did that affect the enjoyment side of things? Look, I think I was never somebody who loved the wrestling sessions, so to speak, mm. like just going down there. You know, my, my love was playing footy. Mm. Like I, I loved getting out there and having game scenarios, being tactical with the way that you'd play and set up and attack a team defensively, you know, rip in and, and whatnot. But when we went to that period of just going down and doing jiu-jitsu and, and just basically taking on a whole new sport and mm. then trying to apply it a little bit to rugby league, but you basically became, you know, a wrestler there. It, it did take away part of the enjoyment for mm. me, but I, I did know that it was part of the process too. And I still got to play footy on a weekend. And yeah. you just, you, you had to have that mindset to be able to do what you needed to do. But I, I, I must admit, it did take away some of that enjoyment that I had in the first place of rugby league, but I knew it was part and parcel of what we needed to do. Yeah. Okay, well, Alan, let's now talk about the sensation of concussion. You, you really were in amongst the tough stuff pretty much all game, every game. And, and being of smaller stature, you were always somewhat vulnerable to copping a high one every now and then. I'd suggest most listeners have not experienced severe or even mild concussion. So can you give us a clue as what are you feeling when that all goes down? Yeah, like, I mean, I've had it probably from a, a couple of different angles of sort of having that high shot placed on me or, you know, having a tackle where, you know, it has gone slightly wrong, where you've gone, you know, in to make a tackle and you've collected a hip or or whatnot. Mm. And it's almost that feeling of it's almost like a numbness, like you've been stunned and then there's that moment of confusion on the other side of it. And sometimes you can't remember, you know, that that moment before or just afterwards, there's, there's that delay that happens. You're groggy, you're waking up the other side of it. And, you know, I've been fortunate, touch wood, that I probably, you know, could only 
you know, looking back, have had three, you know, bad concussions mm-hmm. that, that I sort of look back on and go, you know what, with all of the research and everything that is going on, like I, you know, they were three pretty bad concussions that I had. Mm-hmm. I'm really, you know, pleased that, you know, in each one of those situations, you know, the doctors, the training staff, everything was done in the right manner, like I wasn't put back on the field to go again mm-hmm. and um, whatnot. But then there were some, you know, really mild ones where I probably wasn't as honest with myself and I wasn't as honest with the trainers as I should have been. And, mm. you know, I, I was in that era too where, you know, it was, it was a badge of honour to be able to get back up from this stuff. And, mm. you know, you had a slight concussion. You might not have been completely out, but you do know that there's a moment there where you've been hit and you've been dazed and you're not thinking clearly. Mm. Trainers run out to you. Are you right? Yeah, you okay, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, I'm good as gold, you know, like everything's yeah. okay, but you know deep down you weren't. And so, you know, that's something for me that, you know, part of the role that I do now and, and the legacy that I want to leave, I wanted to change that culture, but it probably wasn't, uh, you know, until sort of the back end of my career that, you know, we started to invest more in it as a game and more research came about and, you know, we we wanted to take more ownership of that and the players needed to drive that. You know, we, we have talks by club doctors and we're so well educated in the clubs, but it needed to be a cultural shift within the playing group, mm. not so much the medical staff. So the players needed to buy into that. And do you think that's that's happened over the last you know, 10, 15 years? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I really believe that, yeah, it, it has started to shift. Look, could it be better? But I think I think we're always going to look at scenarios and players, you know, the, the mindset that you need to be successful in our game is going to create a warrior-type mindset, mm-hmm. is that they want to stay out there and they want to play for their team, they want to play for their fans. They, they don't... They don't want to let anybody down, and so there's going to always be that. And sometimes that's that, that's one of the great things about you know the rules that we have is that the trainer can actually take that decision out of the players' hands mm-hmm. if they know or they get to review it and they say you know what that was a really bad knock, even though he said he's as good as gold. This player, you know, we, we take that decision out of the players' hand, and that that's what's needed to happen as well. So it, it's not only shifted within the playing group, but we've made some steps in place to be able to save the players from themselves, if you know what I mean. Yeah, totally understand. Now, Alan, before we leave the senses, um, with, with a name like Alan Tongue, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about whether there's a taste that comes to mind when you think rugby league. I don't know, some kind of sports drink, sweat, dirt, a chicken wrap, carbs, protein. I don't know. You tell me. Is there a taste that comes to mind <laughs> when you think rugby league? Uh, Protein shakes and Gatorade. That's, uh, I can definitely, um, I can definitely taste that. You know that that preseason as well. The, uh, you know, the sweat that drips into your eyes and the sunscreen and the different stuff when you're doing all of that. You can, you can sort of taste and, and feel all of that throughout. I'm not so sure about actual game day. Um, yeah. There is certainly in it taste. You know, to put in your mouth guard in each week. You know, yeah, the mouth guard is, itself has got its own unique taste. As much as you you um, wash it and clean it, and you, <laughs> you've got the little cleaning aids that you, you often soak your mouth guard in after games or whatnot, and during the week to, to freshen it up, and you get a new one obviously each year. But there is a there's a whole unique taste to when you pop that mouth guard in um, yeah. before you go out to the field or into training. Yeah, it's probably like a, a fingerprint, unique like a, a fingerprint. 
Alan, thank you very much for indulging me, indulging us in the unsung sensations of rugby league. I also want to talk about more, you know, substantial stuff. Um, now, you have a long history in community and social and youth outreach. As I mentioned at the top, you were ACT Australian of the Year in 2017. You were presumably robbed of the top gong. Uh, you've created... <laughs> You've created rehabilitation programs for youth and adult prisoners. You've created programs to equip vulnerable youth with life skills. You've worked to teach our youth about building healthy and respectful relationships to tackle domestic violence. And you're now Community Innovation Programs Manager at the NRL. This is important work and really hard work if you want to do it right and make a real difference. How do you reflect on what the central driving force has been for you that has led you down this path, this path of community education and community service? I mean, it takes me back to my childhood, first and foremost. You know, I grew up in a small little rural community mm. and, you know, mum and dad, you know, really tough country, hardworking people, not having much growing up myself and rugby league giving me the opportunity to live out my childhood dream. Mm. But, you know, community was always a really, really important part of my upbringing, my child and uh, childhood, I remember as a young kid, often, you know, we, we'd drop everything to go and help a neighbour that was in need. I mean, if there was a fire on the a neighbourhood property or whatever it was, my dad was cut into the, the rural fire brigade, we'd mm. drop everything, doesn't matter what it was, to go and help others. Fires, floods, droughts, hardships, those sort of things. So I think that was ingrained in me from a young age. My faith is really important to me. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a, in a Christian home and, uh, you know, loving uh, others is the most important thing in what we do. And so I, I've always had that ingrained in me from a young, young age. And then being able to live out a childhood dream and go and play in the NRL, I've always just failed. I never wanted to miss the opportunity to be able to give back whether it was to my community that helped me through my childhood and gave me that opportunity to get to to the Canberra Raiders, whether it was when I was down in Canberra, the people that supported us. But I I started to, you know, think of, you know, how privileged I was when, you know, you get to see so many stories of others that have gone without. And so I I really didn't know what I exactly was going to do when I finished playing footy. I always thought I might get back into coaching and I actually love strength and conditioning out Mm. of all of the coaching side of things. I love the actual training aspect of it. Mm. And when I retired, I I actually wanted to get a little bit of distance between myself and the playing group. The club actually offered me a role in coaching. Right. And I really thought hard about it because it was a a career path that I really wanted to get into. But I wanted to get some experiences away from footy Mm. because I'd known that the greatest coaches that I'd had throughout my time or the moments that the coaches had connected the best with the group, yes, they had great footy knowledge about them, but they could connect with them as people Mm. more than just a footballer. And I thought that that was such an important skill and I wanted to get those skills. If I wanted to be a great coach, I needed to get other skills just in the knowledge of how to play the game. And so I said to myself, I'll take 12 months, um, you know, maybe two years, but I thought 12 months before I come back and maybe rejoin the club, maybe a little bit of water under the bridge between myself and the playing group. I wouldn't go from a a teammate to a coach straight away. Mm. I'd I'd let a bit of that. And I um, started, I volunteered in a juvenile justice centre and, I knew that that's where I needed to be and then out of that doors opened and opportunities came and I kept saying yes to different little things people had 
give her a request and I'd just keep saying yes to anything and everything and then my heart and vision sort of turned from, you know, being in elite sports and coaching to try and be a, a coach, I suppose, just to people with sort of more vulnerable needs. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. And Alan, just on your faith, I guess the, the rugby league playing cohort is interesting in that as the trend for society as a whole in Australia is is clearly and, and fairly quickly moving away from organised religion, you could argue the rugby league playing cohort is, is probably moving the other way. And that's probably due to the Pacific influence on rugby league. But is that something that you noticed through your career? And did that give you some comfort as a practising Christian? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It was probably throughout my time, probably at the Raiders at the time, we didn't have as big a Pacific influence mm. um, early on in my days, and I probably was a bit of a, a, a lone duck, I suppose, in regards to, to practising my faith, which is okay because, you know, like, uh, yeah, there were some challenging times, but I think, you know, through all of uh, what I've learned in my life is through the challenges and through the, those periods of toughness, Growth's always on the other side, and so I think it's actually made me, you know, a better person and a stronger Christian by going through that. Mm. But it is a wonderful thing that I see in our club, you know, in our clubs everywhere. I shouldn't say just at the Raiders, but in all clubs, is that the Pacific influence and that that has been so openly welcomed. Um, you know, all faiths and religions, races, cultures. Mm. You know, we're so multicultural now, and it, and it is so well embraced it is um it's something that you know was once probably looked at you know in a different lens whereas now it's actually viewed as a real strength and you know people love getting to know others and their stories and you know i'm really blessed to be able to work in the pacific and and get to know people and and know more about people whether it be their faith or their cultures in papua new guinea fiji you know tonga samoa so it's been a real yeah great to be able to do that and, and, you know, to see those guys now and even, you know, non-Pacific Islanders to be able to be comfortable in practising their faith mm. is something that is, yeah, has been really wonderful to see. Yeah. Now, Alan, on your community work, what makes a good community outreach officer, if that's the right term? What skills do you need to have and what traits are maybe not suited to such roles? Yeah. You know, it's one of the, I often see, like, if you look at a lot of the work that I see in, like, whether you're school LSAs, they call them, like learning support assistance, or in our juvenile justice centres, a lot of where I go, and even in adult prison, different things, a lot of the, the people that work in there are actually sporting people, they've got a sporting background, right. and they make really good workers, they make really good social workers, because I think having that footy mindset is really great, and what I mean by that is, is that, you know, like in a footy team, you've got, you know, different personalities, and you've got to be able to relate to those personalities, you've got to judge body language pretty quick, you've got to do that with your opposition, with your teammates, and you need that in those situations in social work, is that you've got to sum up the situation pretty quick, you can't... You know, tar everybody with the same brush. You've got to be really open to, you know, making sure that you let everybody share their story and play to their strengths. Mm-hmm. And you've got to find a way to be able to compliment them. You know, and in rugby league, that's what you've got to do. You can't win the game on your own. You've got to find a way to, you know, work with your teammates and those around you to get the best out of yourself, but also the best out of them. And I think that's the same mindset that you need in the community work. You, you need to see the need. You need to be passionate about the need. But you actually need to humble yourself and bring yourself down to be able to go, right, what do I need to do for them? 
No. Not, not what can I do for myself, is what can I do for them as an individual, as a team, as a community, as a, as a town, whatever it is that you need to do, and, and then get your hands dirty. Yeah. And it also sounds like the ability, and it's, it's probably harder than it sounds, the ability not to judge people. That's a tough one because I know I'm guilty of being really quickly judgmental sometimes. I imagine that's a, a trait that you, you need to be quite good at as well. Yeah, absolutely right. And I know that it's it's one of the, you know, I was I started in juvenile justice. I had the same conversation there. I, I was pretty nervous when I started in the adult system, working with detainees there. But it was one of the first things that uh, I mentioned going into both. I, I don't want to know about what anybody's done. I don't want any, anybody to tell me because that starts to create a mindset, doesn't it? And yeah. I just want to treat everybody. I'm here to help. I'm, I'm not here to uh, to try and, you know, give all the answers, which I don't know. I'm just going to help as best I can, whatever situation you're in. And so I think that's really important, like you mentioned there, is not to be judgmental because we live in a society where everybody's allowed to have an opinion and everybody can and they've got a platform to be yeah. able to do it and I'd buy a computer screen or a phone or whatever that may be, but it's it's a really it's a really great trait to be able to to just sort of sit back and and I'm guilty of it too. Don't worry, I do. I continue to remind myself that you know I'm not here to judge a middle. Yep. And do you have a highlight from your post footy career where you've thought, yes, this is why I went down this path? I've had I've had a few of those. I've had a few little. You know, wins with individuals that I've worked with in, in systems, with footy clubs, you know, even with the work with the NRL, some, even some things that have changed, you know, in regards to violence against women and some policy changes and different things that have gone on. Mm. Um, but one of, the, one of the greatest workshops that I've actually been a part of was actually in the Torres Strait Islands. And I was up there and, you know, not much was probably going right, as in we didn't have... You know, technology wasn't <laughs> working real good and different things. We didn't have great facilities. But we decided to, you know, continue to press on. We were working with this local footy club. It was late at night. It was one of those pictures where we had car lights going. We were sitting under a street light just to be able to keep going together. And we did the workshop, and you might know that, Jono, but all of the workshops that I do, the majority of the workshop is actually done with a footy in hand. Right. Um, I, I, share, I share all of the messages through rugby league. So, you know, only half the time is spent, you know, actually whether you're in front of a PowerPoint or doing activities or giving out information, I actually bring the message to life through footy and the messages that I, uh, I believe we can bring out there. And we're working with the footy club and we'd finished our little footy session and we're sitting under the lights. But we're having a really open and honest chat with these men there was one woman uh, within the group as well by talking about what we wanted the culture to be in the community going forward and who was responsible for it but how we could go about it, achieving this and it was just one of those really raw moments where the footy had made people feel comfortable so we got through a bit of the tough stuff. We talked about statistics. We talked about, you know, different forms of violence. We talked about the death that occurred because more than one woman a week was being killed from this violence in our country. Mm. We got through that tough stuff, but we got to a point where we were having just an open, honest conversation in our footy clubs to make change and for them, you know, to buy into it and then to go and put it in place and talk about, you know, some of the things that they were going to call out, some of the things they were going to stop doing and to 
talk about that in front of their other peers mm-hmm. was this moment going, this is, this is why we do what we do. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, <laughs> this sounds corny, but this is really inspirational stuff, Alan, it really is. Um, now, thank you for, for sharing all that. Now, I also would like to, before we finish up, talk about the rugby league side of things. And you're a Canberra Raiders legend. I've got quite a few friends who are Raiders-obsessed Sydney-siders too. It's weird. So it would be remiss of me not to ask you about the milk. So first of all, have you ever poured cold milk all over your fully clothed body, as is the current trend amongst your lot? <laughs> no, no, okay. I, haven't, uh, I haven't done that, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Secondly, from your time at the club and your ongoing connection to the area, can you give us a sense of the connection the Raiders have with their local community? You know, what's it like to be a Raider? And do you think that connection is growing firmer as time goes on or could the club be doing more perhaps? Yeah, no, it, we're going back to the milk and the Canberra milk, one of our, you know, long-serving sponsors, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. And that, that is one of the great things about, you know, being a Raider is that you do build up a lot of friendships with the, the sponsors that are around because they are really, really loyal. You know, a lot of the sponsors, you know, I call them mates now that, that I met throughout my playing days, but um, I still stay in contact now. I still see them at the games when yeah. I go. They're still continuing to support. And it's just, it's really, yeah, it is really wonderful to see. And they, they're bought into the Raiders. And I think, you know, starting off way back there and having a few of those challenging periods at the start, they're stuck solid and it shows a lot of character to those organisations, but their commitment to the Raiders and, you know, the club does really, you know, try hard to give back to them and, you know, sending players out and being able to connect and there is a there is a real personal connection. It's it's on a first name basis when you go up and you connect to a lot of our sponsors and mm. that's a it's a really nice thing to have and, you know, they're welcomed into the dressing room, into that little inner sanctum that you know, very rarely many people get to go into. Like sometimes a bit of your close family might be able to come into, but you know, some of our wonderful sponsors get that opportunity to come in and sing the team song with you. So you know, they really value that experience as well. And in terms of uh, being, you know, a player in a town that is, you know, has a distinct border. For instance, you know, Sydney. I live in Sydney, and there are obviously several clubs, but you know, the suburbs kind of bleed into each other. It's it's not overly distinct you know perhaps unless you're in manly or something it's quite obviously a manly seagulls area what's it like to be a raider in the raiders community and have fans you know shopping next to you at the local supermarket uh, what's it like running onto the, the the stadium when those same people that you've you know put the carrots through at the self-service next to uh, they're cheering you on what's that like yeah it is you know i mean there's obviously there's some pros and cons isn't there like as in <laughs> You know, you feel sometimes like you're in the Big Brother house because you are in a bit of a smaller community and everybody sort of gets to see what's going in your shopping trolley and knows everything about you sort of thing. But I grew up in a small community where that was pretty normal. So uh, mm-hmm. that was, it didn't sort of worry me too, too much. Um, it was great, you know, to have that connection. And, yeah, it was really, really great to be able to go down to you know, the local shops to be able to go down. I'm a bit of a gardener. You know, the local nursery or whatever it is. Yeah. And then, you know, they, they talk to you like a normal person, but they're talking to you about footy on the weekend and you're having that open conversation. It's, it's something that's, you know, really nice. And, I mean, it's all I knew. And mm. so I, I find it hard to, you know, compare it to anything else, like some players that probably don't get to have that connection. But it, it really made it 
it, it, it really made my decision actually to come to the Canberra Raiders the right one because I, I was I had a choice. I was going to either go to the Broncos or to the Canberra Raiders. Right. And Dad and uh, Mum, and we both went and had a look around um, at both setups right at the back end and actually been on scholarship with the Broncos for three years. So right. I, was, I was pretty set on going to the Brisbane Broncos. But after being to both of the organisations, I came down to the Raiders second. So I'd been to the Broncos. I'd been out for dinner. I actually went out for dinner with Wayne Bennett and his wife. And, you know, you know, did that sort of experience. And then we came down here and I went to the Kingston Hotel and I cooked my own steak with the players and we sat around and we had it. And it was just like, this is a big country town. And I just, I walked away just going, this this feels like back home. Like yeah. it, yes, it's much bigger than it was Tenworth, but it felt like a big community. And, and that's what it's always felt like to me and still to this day. That's fantastic. Now, what about the chances for 2022 for the Green Machine? Quite disappointing 2021. Felt like things were getting pretty claustrophobic down there at times. Can fans be optimistic that Ricky Stewart stick is capable of uh, freshening things up? Yeah, I think so. I think a couple of those little additions to the side, it has been a little bit uh, disappointing to hear that Jamal Fogarty has, um, you know, hurt his knee and going to mm-hmm. be out for a little bit. I thought he was going to be, you know, maybe one of those little missing cogs that, you know, one player, it doesn't all rest on their shoulders, but that one player can make so many others around them, you know, go to that next level, which they needed. So that's a little bit disappointing, but I think there is. There's some real excitement. I mean, last year we missed a fair chunk without Charles at fullback. You know, Xavier Savage that's coming through there too. We know how important the number one is in the game. You know, Tommy Starling coming through. There was a fair bit of conjecture last year with, you know, Josh Hodgson, and there was there was a fair few distractions. Mm. I think coming back and playing back at home, I think that'll really benefit them. You know, it's, it's a real advantage to be playing, you know, in, in, in front of your home fans, wherever that may be, but I think in particular for Canberra and those home ground advantage that uh, you get through a bit of the weather challenges down this way and how, how crazy our fans are down here. They're getting more and more passionate. They love getting out there and it really does help your performance. So I think there's a lot to be, you know, looking forward to. Some great up-and-coming talent coming through. Nick Cottridge is back as well, which is great. So it's a matter of staying fit and healthy, which is really, really important. But, yeah, I think I think Ricky's you know, done a really good job. I think, I think uh, it'll be really great to see how they go in 2022. Okay. Well, you might have convinced me there, Alan. I, I had Canberra coming maybe 10th or 11th, but I'm, I think I'm going to push them up to 8th. Do, do you have a, a finishing position that uh, that you you think they can achieve? Yeah, I think they're in that um, top eight position for sure. You know, I think I think they need to get the runs back on the board to be able to say that they're a top four contender like we probably have the last couple of years when we've chatted about them. But, you know, I definitely can see them in that position in that sort of that top eight there. Yeah, okay. Now, thank you so much for your time. Just one more question, if I may. It's it's an obvious question, but I love asking it. Is there one moment you look back on in your playing career that still gives you goosebumps to this day? It could be a try, it could be a last gasp win, or something more subtle behind the scenes, maybe a halftime speech perhaps. Anything that springs to mind? There is a couple. I mean, I could obviously say my debut game, which was, which was pretty crazy, sure. um, that, that whole experience. But one, one really important game for me was I was captain of the side. I actually had busted my ribs, you know, really badly uh, only the week before. But my um, 
my little cousin uh, had actually passed away the week prior to this game. And uh, it was a really, really challenging time for our family. She uh, wasn't even 21 years of age and was mm. taken from us in a car accident. And mm. it was a really, really tough period. And I went back home to the funeral. I, w- I wasn't right to play. I was, was, I was meant to be out for a couple of weeks. Um, but we played the Dragons down at Wynn Stadium. And I... I needed to play. I needed to play. It was a part of my healing process. I, I, I probably, you know, looking back on it, I mightn't have grieved the way I should have grieved. But my, my way, what I, what I needed to do to heal from that moment is I needed to be back on the footy field. I needed to be back with my team. I needed to be back into what I knew was normal. And I went down and I don't think the doctor could have put any more local anaesthetic into my uh, rib. I had shoulder pads basically strapped around my torso. I was getting wind knocked out of me every time I ran, I passed, I tackled. It was like somebody was sticking a knife in me. But my teammates knew how much uh, it meant to me. And we weren't meant to win. And and we won that game. And that that game was something that, you know, we didn't go on and win a competition. We didn't do that. But that game was really, really important in my life at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And so... That was a game that, um, you know, really stood out to me. I couldn't even go back on the team bus. I actually went back with one of the managers, Donnie Ferner, was the CEO, was in the car too. They put me in the front seat and they basically, I couldn't sit upright. I had to lay the car seat, passenger seat, completely flat because of my ribs yeah. to get back after the local anaesthetic wore off. But it was important I played in the game. Yeah. Oh, that's a, a beautiful story. Thanks so much, Alan. Well, we are out of time, unfortunately, but you've taken us to places we could only ever have dreamt or to smell or feel. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and for getting into the spirit and all the best for your future pursuits, including all the, the brilliant community service that you continue to deliver. So, Alan Tung, go well, and thank you for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. My pleasure. Go the Raiders. <laughs> Progressive Rugby League. Alan Tung, ladies and gents. What a great guy. Alrighty, thanks again, folks, for lending me your ears. Until we next meet, smell on the roses. Rugby League. Call me. And see ya.